portion at a time. Um, and before we get there, let's, let's go to the Lord and pray and just ask his blessings upon his word. Father, we are so thankful that the, the wondrous mystery of the gospel has been revealed and has been made known that for our redemption and for your eternal glory, you have sent forth your Son, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, who is the true and better Adam, who is the righteous Son of Man. He did not sin, he did nothing but good, and yet he took upon himself our curse and our sin. He died in the place of all those who will trust in him. And God, you raised him from the dead for our justification. We're thankful for that this morning. We give praise to the Lord Jesus. And now as we look at Genesis 31, we look at it as Christians, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so I pray this morning that you would help me to faithfully preach the text. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to receive your word. And I pray that you'd help us see Jesus on the pages of scripture. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. When I first started reading the Bible as a new Christian, I had a lot of aha moments, a lot of revolutionary moments that I'll never forget. And one of those, just for an example, is when I first read the Sermon on the Mount. And I was reading the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. I mean, Jesus just seemed so so powerful to me and so in control and authoritative. I just, as, a, as a non-believer, I thought the Bible was irrelevant. And then now as a born-again Christian, I, I just could not believe how not only pertinent it was to my life, but how authoritative Jesus was. He would say things like, you've heard that it was said long ago, but I say to you. And I was just blown away by that. I had another one of those moments when I first read the book of Job. I read about how Job lost everything, lost all of his finances, his business, his family, his health. And then towards the end of the book, he, he complains to God. And I'm thinking, well, rightfully so, I would complain too. But then God shows up in a whirlwind and he says these words. I'll never forget when I first read them. The Lord speaks to Job and says, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And on and on, God asked these rhetorical questions, basically saying to Job, who are you to question me? And I was just blown away by this God. Another one of those moments is when I read the book of Genesis for the first time. Of course, that's the book you guys have been going through as a church. And I don't remember everything I read or everything that made an impression upon me in that first reading, but I do remember two things very vividly. One is that these people in this book are really messed up. Like I remember some guys I was discipling, one guy in particular, when he first, he just got sober and just came to know the Lord, and he just, he, he read the Bible for the first time. He said, Brandon, I thought in the Bible that all these people would be holy, but they're really screwed up like me. <laughs> I said, that's true. And that's the impression I had when I read the book of Genesis. I mean, you have Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they, they mess everything up. And then after that, you have Noah, and he seems righteous, but then he gets drunk and shows his rear end. Um, Cain kills Abel, right? Then you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the chosen ones of God, the patriarchs, but even they have tons of trouble. And so what you see is a lot of people have a lot of issues, but then what, what impressed me, though, was that there was this God who continued to show up. It was like this story being told about people. And then at these certain points, here's the Lord. 
he's being faithful. He's being kind and gracious. He's not giving up on these people that, I mean, let's just be honest, you and I would have given up on a long time ago. God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to those whom he has called to be his own in Christ. And that's really what I got out of Genesis 31 as I studied it fresh this week. I had to wrap my mind around it because it's been a while since I dug into Genesis. So I had to read Genesis 31 and I had to read all the way back to Genesis 24 and forward just trying to think about the life of Jacob and what's going on here. And I'm just thinking, Lord, two things that stuck out to me. One, Jacob had favor from God. And two, God was incredibly faithful to Jacob. And has he not been faithful to us? Has he not been good to us, those who don't deserve it? We don't deserve it any more than they do. And yet God has not given up on us. God continues to bless us in Christ. And that's what I want you to really just be impressed upon this morning, the faithfulness of God in the story and in the life of Jacob. Of course, you know, um, there's been drama in the life of Jacob even before he was born. In the womb, him and his brother were wrestling back and forth with each other, right? And then when he was born, Jacob was the favorite of his mother, Rebecca, and Isaac was, was the one who picked Esau as his favorite. So there was automatic division right from the very beginning. Later in life, Jacob takes Esau's birthright for a, a cup of soup, and then he steals his blessing from his father through deception. And so Esau, rightfully so, I'd say, wants to kill his brother. So there's a lot of drama in the life of Jacob, and because of that, Jacob is sent by his mother to the house of Laban, which is her brother, right? And he's to go there, and he's to find for himself a wife. And he does that. He meets, he meets Rachel, and he loves Rachel. And he'll do anything to be with Rachel. And when he actually finds out what he has to do, seven years of labor, he says it was like just a few days to him because of how much he loved Rachel. But then instead of Rachel, who is he given? He's given Leah, right? It was given Rachel's sister. He was tricked by Laban. So he worked another seven years for Rachel. Now 14 years have passed, and he has not one wife but two. And then he has to work another six years for the flock. So he's been working for Laban, this cruel father-in-law, this, this liar, this deceiver, this not a very good man, for 20 years. And this whole time, even though he's been under the oppression of this, this greedy man, God has been faithful to Jacob. He's been faithful. He's been kind. And now the Lord is going to call Jacob back to his homeland. Call Jacob back to the land of his fathers. He's wealthy. He has tons of livestock. He has a large family, many wives, many children. And now he's called back to the land of his fathers. And I want to give you, as we walk through this passage of Scripture, we're going to really just focus on the faithfulness of God. But I want to give you five points to think about. Five points to think about the faithfulness of God, and we'll work through the text systematically. And the first point I want to give you is this, is God is with his people. Verses 1 to 3, God is with his people. And as I said, after 20 years of service, now Jacob is leaving. Verse 1 says this, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Laban's sons are angry because Jacob has accumulated vast amounts of wealth. And they're not just 
jealous of his prosperity, what they understand is he has not only taken from their father, but they're worried about their inheritance because whatever their father has, that's what will be passed down to them. And so they see their future diminishing before their very eyes. And so consequently, Laban's sons, they want to take action. And I think, honestly, what would have happened at this point if Jacob would have stuck around, they probably definitely would have taken his flock, but probably would have killed Jacob. That's probably what's going on here. All because Jacob is doing what the Lord has commanded him to do. And, and really, as you think about the book of Genesis, you think about this set in the larger context of Scripture, this highlights a major theme that runs all the way through the Bible, going back to Genesis 3, when the Lord said to the woman and to the serpent, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of the woman. And what you see is that's a major theme is good versus evil. You have the offspring of Eve, the offspring of the devil, and you see that in the next chapter, Cain versus Abel. Devil's offspring, the woman's offspring. And all throughout Scripture, you have good versus bad. And so this is no different here. It's, it's Laban and his sons versus the people of God. They want to kill God's people. And so it should be no surprise to us to this day that that theme is true in our lives. Christians, listen, don't be surprised when, even when you're doing the will of God, that the world does not love you. The world is not going to love us for being Christians. I, I see some people in here that you've been a Christian or been in the church for a long time, I'd imagine. You remember days when it was popular to be a Christian. Well, th those days are gone. The world is not going to celebrate you for doing the will of God. In fact, it's going to hate you for it. There was a day that if you sold insurance, it would be advantageous for you to join the most prestigious church in town for your business sake. Today, it would be more advantageous not to join that church. That's just the way that the culture has shifted. People do not celebrate Christians any longer. And so we shouldn't be surprised when this theme of Satan's people versus God's people is still true for us today. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember, it's because they first hated me. The sons of Laban hate Jacob, all for living a godly life and doing what the Lord said. But remember... God is with his people. Look at verse 3 again. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. I'm with you, Jacob. Don't worry about them. I will be with you. And this reminds us, this call to return, this reminds us of Genesis 12 when God told Abraham to leave Mesopotamia and go to the land of Canaan. So God is calling Jacob just as he called his grandfather. And I think it's a preview also to the book of Exodus when God is going to Take the people of God who have grown in number, just like Jacob's family has grown in number. And when they're in bondage and slavery, and he's going to bring them out from under oppression and into the land of promise. Jacob has grown in number. He is under oppression, and God is bringing him out to the land of promise. So this is kind of a preview of what's to come in the larger picture of redemption. And in both instances, God is with his people. In both cases... The Lord promises to be with his people. In fact, you remember back in chapter 28 when the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and to your offsprings. He's saying this to Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and east and north and south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. 
the Lord is fulfilling his promise here. He says, I'm not going to leave you until I bring you back to this land. And God is being faithful to Jacob just as he's faithful to us today. Just as he's faithful to be with us. Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, and what? Behold, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'm with you. God is always with his people. Which brings us to our second point. God always blesses his people. So God is with his people, demonstrating his faithfulness. Number two, God blesses his people. That's verses 4 to 16. So Jacob knows that Laban and his sons are not happy. He knows that they're probably planning violence against him. And so he's, he wants to leave. And he knows that God, as well, is calling him back home. He's finally making good on his promise 20 years later to go back home. But Jacob still has to make the case to his wives. He has to make sure they're on board with him to leave. And that's what you see here in verse 4. It says, So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Jacob is making the case to Rachel and Leah why they should leave their father Laban. And it's important that he does this because it was, it was customary um, in this time that if a father was going to release his daughters, then there had to be given permission to do so. This was a very big deal. And, and you know, I, honestly, I understand this. I have a daughter of my own. And if some guy wanted to take her away from me without talking to me, well, you better believe I'd be like Laban and chase them down. I would not be happy about that. In fact, I know that uh, just from moving my family from Indiana to Tennessee, we're just four hours away from family. <laughs> my wife's dad was not happy about it. So I understand this, this dynamic of got to make the case. Like I had to make the case to my wife. Listen, I think the Lord's calling us to Tennessee. I think he's made a way for us to leave. I know that, uh, I know that it's not custom in your family because like, her whole family stays together. They've been in one location for a long time. And so it was a big deal for me to make the case to my wife, I think the Lord's calling us to Tennessee. And so that's what Jacob is doing here. And he's got some pretty good reasons why Rachel and Leah should leave their father. One, <laughs> Laban and his sons are after Jacob, so they're probably in danger. Two, Laban has cheated Jacob for years. He's changed his wages ten times. He's tricked him into working for him for 20 years. He's been cruel to Jacob. But despite Laban's efforts to oppress him, God has blessed Jacob. God has not only been with Jacob, he has blessed Jacob. And what you learned last week in chapter 30 is how Laban and Jacob made this deal. Jacob said, listen, 
I'll make this deal with you. All the animals that are spotted and striped, the less desirable animals, the ones that probably would have produced less in the flock, he says, I will take those. You can take all the good flock. And of course, Laban's thinking that this is a sucker's deal. Well, of course I'll take that deal. And so through God's providence and God's wisdom, Jacob is able to set up his flock where, what do they produce? All striped and spotted and mottled. And so Jacob's flock grew abundantly, and he didn't cheat Laban. He did it fairly, but the reason that he was so prosperous is because God blessed him. His flocks had grown exponentially. And what that shows you as we think about God's blessings is that nothing can frustrate the plans of God. Nothing. Nothing can stay his hand. And also, Christians, think about this. Nobody in here would say that Jacob's life wasn't blessed. Nobody in here would say that Jacob didn't have the hand of God's favor upon him all of his life. And we think about Jacob in that way, but Jacob's life was not easy. It was hard. He had to labor for his wives and his family and his, his property. And so as you look at his life, what we see is a man who struggled for many years, but even through those struggles, God's blessing was upon him. And isn't that true of you? Life is hard. We go through constant struggles and hardships, but all the while, God's blessing is always upon us. God's favor is always with us. And so we have this, this paradox of hardship, suffering, and blessing. That's the Christian life. It's joy in suffering. That's the way God has ordained it. We can take comfort in the fact that God has become our Father in Christ, and He's not only blessed us like He's blessed Jacob. Most importantly, He's blessed us in Christ. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, just as He did Jacob. And now it's time for Jacob to leave. And for the first time, I think, you see Leah and Rachel agree on something. Look at verse 14. It says, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Rachel and Leah didn't agree about much, but here's one thing they agreed about. It's time to leave Laban. It's time to leave our father. He's not been fair. He's not been kind. It's not just that he's been unfair with Jacob. He's been unfair with them. I mean, he used his daughters for money. He extracted the bride price out of Jacob. And the bride price was a heavy toll for Jacob. It was 14 years of labor. And they see that. They see, you know, this didn't go without notice. They see that their father used them for his own financial gain. They said, so we're done. Whatever God has told you, we're with you, Jacob. We see that God has blessed you. We see that God is with you. All these things God has given to you, and we're prepared to leave with you. Even they see the blessing of God upon Jacob. And so they're ready to leave, and that leads us to our next point. God is not only with his people, he not only blesses his people, God protects his people. God protects his people. But it's not because of our righteousness. Make no mistake. What you're going to see in the following account, it's because of his goodness and his faithfulness. Look at verse 17. They're ready to leave, and so it says, So Jacob arose 
and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property they had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired at Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill of the country of Gilead. So without Laban knowing, they leave. They gather up all their stuff while Laban is out in the field shearing sheep, which was a, a long job, and they leave without any notice. Now, I told you, or it was said before, I'm from Indianapolis, which means I know I'm a Colts fan. Sorry if that makes me your enemy. I, I fully intend that the Colts are going to win the South this year with our new acquired quarterback. Some of you may know that Indianapolis, we got the Colts um, as an organization, as a football team, under much controversy. I don't know if you guys know the, the story behind that, but we got the Colts back in 1984. And the way that we got the Colts is the team owner, Robert Ursay, he packed up the Colts organization when they were in Baltimore. He packed them up on Mayflower trucks in the middle of the night and left town while everybody slept. Like the city of Baltimore had no idea what he was doing, and he left and... And one night, Baltimore had a team, and in the morning, they didn't. And so for the last 30-plus years, Baltimore has a resentment towards Indianapolis because of that. And whenever the Colts go and play in Baltimore, when they play the Ravens, they introduce the Colts as that team from Indianapolis. They will not call them the Colts to this day because of how they left. And so in a similar fashion, Jacob leaves the house of Laban without telling anybody. He waits until Laban's out in the field shearing his sheep, which would have taken multiple days, multiple men, very involved job. He gets all of his property, all of his family, and he leaves. All while Laban had no idea. But before they leave, Rachel has to make a little pit stop at daddy's house because she wants to steal his household gods. Now, now just an idea, these would have been like little statues, small things probably looked like people, and they would have been object of worship for uh, people who are involved in idolatry and pagan religions, which Laban would have been. Laban is not a godly man. He worshiped false gods. But for some reason, Rachel goes back and steals these little statues, these gods, and we don't really know why. Uh, did she want them for their monetary value? Did she think that they'd bring her good fortune? Or maybe, and I think this is most likely, she was trying to prevent her father from consulting these gods so that he would not be able to pursue them and know where they were going. But what she doesn't realize is that she's put her whole family in jeopardy. She's put her whole family in danger because when Laban finds out, he's not only going to be mad that Jacob left with his family, he's going to be angry that they stole from him. And so in verse 22, we see God already intervening in Laban's life so he doesn't harm Jacob and his family. Look at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. It's hard to see this in your English Bibles, but those words when it says Jacob fled and Laban pursued, these are actually military terms. These are terms used to describe one army running away from another and the other army pursuing them to destroy them. 
And so what the text is communicating here is that Laban is pursuing Jacob to harm him. But God intervenes in a dream with Laban, and he says, you better not touch this man. Don't don't even say a word to him. Don't even say anything good or bad to this man. God is already intervening to protect Jacob. And, And this is what God did in the life of Abraham too. Remember that? God came to Abraham in a dream when they met Abimelech because, or he came to Abimelech in a dream rather, because Abraham said that Sarah was his sister so that they wouldn't kill him and take Sarah to be his own. He, he said, this is my sister. And then Abimelech was going to take Sarah to be his wife. But the, God showed up in a dream and said to that man, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I remember reading that for the first time. I thought, Lord. He didn't know, right? It's not his, it's, it's Abraham's fault. It's not Abimelech's fault. And that's what Abimelech says. He says, Lord, I had no idea. But it just goes to show you how protective God is of his children. I know sometimes my daughter, she comes home from school, and she'll say a girl said something nasty to her, or, or worse, a boy. And even though she's in kindergarten, I like to tell her I like to grab those boys by the backs of their pants and throw them in the street. One day she came home and said that a boy pinned her on the ground, on the playground. And my goodness, I thought I was about ready to lose my Christianity. When people go after our children, we become very protective real quick. Think about God. Christians, aren't you glad that God is your father and not your enemy? I'm so thankful that God is not against me, but he's for me in Christ. He's not only for me, I'm his child in Christ. And here's the incredible thing. We all were once enemies of God. That's how the Bible describes us. Hostile in mind, angry, haters of God. We were enemies of God. Can you imagine going toe-to-toe with the Almighty? Yet in Christ... He's not only redeemed us and saved us and reconciled us, he's made us his children. God has gone from being our judge to our father. What an incredible gospel. So God tells Laban, don't don't say anything to Jacob. Don't do anything to Jacob. But Laban does not fear God. He doesn't listen. Look at verse 25. It says, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Laban, he lives in his own reality. That's not what happened at all. They wanted to leave Laban because he was an ungodly man and he was an unjust and unfair man. But he has this own concept of reality as you're going to see more and more because he thinks he's the good guy who never does wrong. But in this story, Laban is the bad guy. Look at verse 27. He goes on, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Laban says, Jacob, why did you leave without telling me? Had I known you were wanting to leave, I would have thrown you a party. We would have celebrated your departure. All I want to do is kiss my daughters and my grandbabies. 
if you're Jacob, you'd say, really, Laban? Then why'd you bring all these armed men? Why did you pursue me like a general? And why are you here now being a bully telling me you could do me harm? Laban is being just as deceptive here as he's been for the last 20 years. He doesn't want to just kiss his grandbabies and daughters. He wants to get his money back. He wants to get his family back because he's lost his pride. Laban has his own view of reality. And I've known a lot of people like this. You can ask me and my wife. Last 12 years of pastoral ministry, we've talked to a lot of people who like to reinvent reality, who like to reinvent history. And it's amazing that when someone is in the wrong, how they can turn the story and become the hero of the story. And I just want to say to you Christians, let's not be like that. Let's be people who, when we're wrong, are repentant. Let's be people that when we are the ones who have sinned, confess that sin. Let's not justify our wrong actions and justify our wrong words. Let's be people who own up and live by the truth because we're people of the truth. But when we live like the world, then our testimony is going to be no good to them. So let's be people not like Laban, but live in the truth. Now the argument really starts to heat up. Look at verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Laban says, why did you leave? Jacob, without telling me, Jacob says, because I was afraid of you. I was afraid you'd hurt me. I was afraid you're going to take my family. And he says, and by the way, to your point about the gods, anybody here with the gods, you can kill them because we didn't take your gods. And so Jacob unknowingly puts Rachel under the sentence of death because what he doesn't know is that his party is in possession. Now look at verse, the next verse, verse 33. It says, Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tents of the two female servants. But he did not find them. And when, when he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's, I'm sorry, and he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them on the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban fell around the tent but did not find them. And she, this is Rachel, said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of the woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Laban shows what he really cares about, it's possessions. He's going out in and out of everybody's tent, and he's searching for his gods. This is what he's most concerned about, is his money. And what he doesn't realize is that his daughter Rachel is sitting on them, and, and whether she's really experiencing her monthly monthly. Uh, ladies cycle, we can't be sure. I would not put it past her to lie. But what's interesting here is that Laban's gods are powerless. A woman who's experiencing the way of the woman is sitting on them, and they have no power to speak. They have no power to hear. They have no power to come forth because this is what false gods do. They have nothing to offer. And I think there's there's some... There's some irony here that I think Jews would have looked back on to say how embarrassing it was for Laban's gods. And it, it kind of reminds me of when Elijah was on Mount Carmel calling out the prophets of Baal. He, uh, he said this in 1 Kings 18. said to the prophets, cry aloud to Baal, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. 
or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. Why won't your God's answer? Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. It's the same thing here. These, these little gods have no power. And the same is true with false gods in our lives. We may not have gods of little trinkets and statues, but we have a lot of things we exalt over Christ. And as Christians, we may have Christ in the throne room, but oftentimes there's an idol sitting on the throne. Calvin said that our hearts are like little idol factories, just constantly churning them up. And the thing is, is that these little gods that we love in our lives, whether it be things of the world or lust in our own hearts, they, they have no power, really. Well, they have power, but it's destructive power. And what we need to see from this is the futility of exalting anything above the one true and living God. What's amazing about this is that uh, even though, you know, even though Jacob is so sure that nobody has his gods, he's wrong, isn't he? They actually do have Laban's gods. I'll just take note of this, Christians. And this is the way the Apostle Paul told us to read the Old Testament, to take them as lessons. Were, the Old Testament was written for us, for our instruction. Take note that you can be passionate about something and still be wrong. You can believe with all your heart that you're right about something and be off. It's true of Jacob here. But the highlight here is not on the people. The highlight is on how God protects his people. So God protected Jacob in the dream, and he's providentially protecting them now as Rachel sits on these gods so Laban can't find them. Because if he finds them, somebody's going to die. But God is protecting. He's blessing his people. And listen, here's what should really give you encouragement. He blesses us and protects us despite our foolishness. Rachel is a liar and a thief. And God blesses her. Jacob is ill-informed and passionately wrong. And God blesses him. I think that's probably why you guys named your church Grace Life Church, isn't it? Because salvation and God's favor is all of grace. It's all of grace. Well, Jacob's had enough, and that brings us to our fourth point, is that God sustains his people. God sustains his people. Verse 36 says, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Just lays into him. This is 20 years of resentment getting ready to come out. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense and what is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. Jacob says, set up a court of law. Let your kinsmen, my kinsmen, be the judge of us. You found nothing. There's nothing here to bring me up on indictments. Jacob is, is letting all this anger that's been stewing for the last two decades to just unleash on Laban. Look at verse 38. He says, these 20 years I've been with you, Laban. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. He says, I have labored tirelessly for you. I have done everything you asked of me. I even bore the loss that shepherds aren't supposed to bear. So if, a, if one of the flock members of the flock was lost, that's on the person who owns the flock, not the shepherd. That's not his responsibility financially. But Jacob says, I bore that loss for you. I worked my tail off for you. 
Verse 40. He says, There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, which is another way of saying the God of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob said, you know what, Laban? If it wasn't for the Lord, I'd be poor and destitute. You'd have sent me away with nothing to show. Of 20 years, I would have nothing to show if it were up to you. But God has been with me. God sustained Jacob. God upheld him. I'll tell you one thing. If this text teaches us anything, it's uh, family relationships can be hard. Working for family can be especially hard. I worked for my father for years, ran one of his shops, and he never paid me much. He always had his reasons why, and I would always justify it in my mind why it wasn't that big of a deal. But stuff like that can build resentment. And you see Jacob here, this resentment is just bursting forth. This is 20 years of anger. But through it all, God has upheld Jacob. Isn't that true of you? Even right now, some of you probably have people in your life, maybe family, that you're resentful towards, angered towards. And yet God sustains you. God upholds you. I love verse 42. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you have sent me away empty-handed. If it weren't for God, I'd have nothing. I know that's true of my life. If it weren't for God, I would have nothing. My testimony, my story, um, I run our recovery and redemption ministry at the church. It's a recovery ministry for drug addicts and alcoholics. The reason I run that ministry is because I've been sober for 15 years. I got saved here in Tennessee. In 2007, I moved down here after getting out of jail. I was in jail for the last six months prior to that. I moved here to live with my grandmother because I had nowhere else to go. And I started going to this church called the Journey Church at West Elementary School when they were about, about the size of this room here. I met a pastor named Eric Reed. He shared the gospel with me, and I got saved. I got baptized. The Lord called me to ministry. He gave me a family. I would have nothing if it weren't for God, absolutely nothing. My sin in this world crushed me, but God saved me. And that's what Jacob's saying here. I'd have nothing if it weren't for God. And friends, aren't you so thankful that God sustains us? Shouldn't we all say, I'd have nothing if it weren't for God? Nothing. The reason you've kept your faith, the reason your life hasn't fallen apart, is because of God. It's all because of the Lord. Paul says, in Him we live and move and have our being. God is the one who sustains us. But that brings us to our last point. God sets apart His people. Says then Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these are my daughters, or for these my daughters, or for their children whom you born. So Laban is living in his own world again. These are not his, nothing here is his. But he's trying to save face now, and he wants to make a covenant between him and Jacob because he has nothing left. And so that's what you see in verse 44. It says, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. 
they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. So there's two stones. There's two, peop- two different parties eating. So what you see is a separation here. And it says, And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Verse 47. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, which is Aramaic. But Jacob called it Galead, or I'm sorry, Galeed. It's the same word, just one's Hebrew, one's Aramaic. And it's showing a distinction here. Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and you today. Therefore he named it Galeed and Mizpah, which means watchtower. For he said, the Lord watched between me and you when we are out of one another's sight. So this is a covenant to make sure they don't attack each other. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between me and you. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of, the fa- uh, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This pact is a pact to not harm one another. This pact is a pact to separate from one another. And what you're seeing here is God is making a distinction between Laban, the people of the world, and Jacob, which are his called people. We call this being holy and set apart for the purposes of God. And that's what Jacob and his family were. They were people that had God's presence, protection, blessing, his faithfulness, his goodness. But I want to to close with this, and I think it's uh, important for us as we think about this text and go into a time of confession. Why did God bless Jacob so much? Have you ever asked that? Why was God so faithful? Why was God so kind? Because at the end of the day, was Jacob a good guy? I mean, he gets better. But honestly, he was a liar. He was a deceiver. I mean, he took his, he took his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup. He deceived his blind father to get a blessing, and then he left? If you make the argument that he got God's blessing because he was righteous, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Rachel and Leah were schemers. They were resentful women. Bitterness, revenge, and anger marked their life. Rachel's a thief and possibly a liar. As for Jacob's sons, they were all blessed too, but you think about it, his firstborn son, Reuben, he goes on to sleep with Jacob, one of Jacob's Wives, Simeon and Levi, they murdered men out of anger. The rest of his brother, their brothers conspired to kill Joseph, all of them except for Benjamin, and conspired to kill Joseph. Yet God's blessing was upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their offspring. And the question I just want to ask is why? And the answer has to be it's not because of their righteousness, but because of the righteousness of another. There would come one centuries later from the tribe of Judah in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would earn and deserve the blessings of God. This one is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus did obey the commands and decrees of God. He was faithful. He was righteous and blameless every day of his life, unlike Jacob. And unlike Jacob, he was not born of the seed of Adam, 
Jesus was born by the power of the Spirit through the Virgin Mary and therefore without sin. And he lived a life of perfect sinlessness. And his whole life was marked by and filled with doing good to others. Where Adam and his posterity fell to the serpent's temptations, Jesus withstood the devil. Jesus defeated Satan. And then his ministry was all one of self-sacrifice. Our lives are marked by selfishness. Jesus is marked by doing good to others. Our lives are marked by self-preservation and seeking our own prosperity. Jesus loved the Lord his God and loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus taught God's word, healed sick people, cast out demons, raised the dead, made a blind man see, made the deaf hear. He brought hope and joy, he forgave sins. He did everything that Jacob should have done, but didn't. He was the true and better Adam. Which is why it's amazing that even though he was sinless and perfectly obedient, Jesus willingly died in the place of sinners like Jacob like Rachel, like Leah, and like us. He didn't have to die. It was his choice to die. And at any time, he could have stopped it. At any time, he could have called down a legion of angels to put an end to the mockery, to the beating, to being spit on, to being tortured, to being murdered. But he endured it all because it was the will of his Father. And he not only endured the pain and suffering from men, he absorbed the wrath of God in the stead of ruined sinners. He bore God's judgment, listen, that Jacob deserved. The judgment that Leah and Rachel deserved, the judgment that we deserve, Jesus took upon himself. And he died and they buried his body in a lifeless tomb. But praise be to God, when it seemed like all hope was lost, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he's victorious over sin and death and Satan. And he's now seated at the right hand of God from where he will return to judge and restore all things. But until that time, he offers forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life. And so as we sing a final song, as I've told that you do each week, let this be a time of repentance. Let this be a time of confession. Let this be a time to think about how blessed your life is, just like Jacob. Think about how faithful God has been to you, even in your foolishness. Even in your sin, he's never left you. And it's all because Jesus earned your salvation. It's all because of what Jesus did. And so let's go to the Lord now and pray. And let's just praise God for who he is and what he's done in our lives. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have blessed us immensely in Christ. And we look at the life of Jacob, and we see ourselves there. We see someone who has wrestled and struggled with sin, who over the course of his life did the best he could to become a better man. But God, in the final analysis and in, in view of your holiness and your righteous standards, Jacob should have been condemned. We too, Lord. Stand with him as those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the only reason we can account for your faithfulness and your goodness in our life is for Jesus' sake. It's because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
And Father, I pray for anyone in this room right now that has not received pardon for their sin, the forgiveness of their iniquities. I pray for anyone who's trusting in their own goodness, their own righteousness. Let it be known to them today that only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. And I pray that they would lay hold of him and his mercy. And so we, we lift up Christ to you and magnify him and thank you, God, for the incredible grace you've given us in Christ. We pray in his name.